And that is our text today, the first five verses of Matthew chapter 7, if you have your Bible and want to turn there. But while you're, telling, while you're turning there, let me tell you about a Washington Post report. The Washington Post reported the story of a pharmacology student at the University of Virginia named Dennis O'Brien and a restaurant that was on the edge of the campus of the University of Virginia called The Mousetrap. It started out with a simple misunderstanding, like most conflicts typically do. Dennis O'Brien went into the Mousetrap restaurant one night looking for friends, and when he went in, the Mousetrap claims he was given a little red tab. It's what the restaurant gave out to its patrons to keep track of their drinks and their food to then pay when they left that night. O'Brien went into the restaurant and wandered around the restaurant looking for friends. He didn't find any friends, so he turned to leave, and the cashier stopped him at the door asking for his red tab. And O'Brien claims, because he didn't have it with him, that he was never given a red tab. It could have ended there. The cashier could have simply let him go. But instead, the cashier demanded $5, saying that the mousetrap's policy is that patrons who lose their red tab have to pay $5. It could have ended there, but it didn't. O'Brien could have gotten out his, his wallet and simply paid the $5 and left the restaurant, but he didn't. He became belligerent, and he began to loudly proclaim that it was a violation of his rights to pay for what he hadn't eaten or hadn't drank. Well, it could have ended there with a restaurant letting him go at that point, but instead the manager of the restaurant came out and she became incensed by the commotion that he was causing, and she called the Charlottesville, Virginia police. And the police came and they took O'Brien in the squad car down to the jail in the city of Charlottesville. And there a magistrate was called, and the magistrate, hearing what had happened, refused to issue an arrest warrant, and O'Brien was released. It could have ended there, but it didn't. O'Brien was so incensed by what had happened that he angrily threatened to sue the mousetrap. He demanded a printed apology and it could have ended there. But instead of apologizing, the Mousetrap restaurant, their manager, dared O'Brien to sue and hired their own lawyer. And so that's exactly what O'Brien did. Rather than letting the matter drop, he hired a lawyer, and he filed suit, and he took them to court for false imprisonment, abusive process, and defamation. That, court, that trial worked its way through the system. At any point along in the process, it could have ended with one or the other of the parties dropping the matter, but they didn't. Finally, the case was dismissed for various reasons, and it could have ended there, but it didn't. Even though the case against the mousetrap had been dismissed, the mousetrap's manager was so upset by what she perceived as the, the adverse publicity that had come as a result of this and how she thought it was harming the business that she countersued. And she sued O'Brien for defamation. Well, by that point, when that case was filed, 
O'Brien had already moved on to another state. And so even though that case began to creep along in the court system, the notice that he was being sued never reached O'Brien because it went to an old address. So the case went to trial in Charlottesville without O'Brien present. There was a jury. They heard the evidence that the mousetrap presented. They didn't hear any defense from O'Brien who wasn't there. And the jury ultimately rendered a verdict of $60,000 in favor of the mousetrap and that judgment against Dennis O'Brien. It could have ended there, but it didn't. O'Brien, when he finally got notice of the judgment, could have come back to Charlottesville, sat down with a mousetrap manager and a mediator, and worked out an amicable agreement. But instead, he thumbed his nose at the process, and he moved to New Zealand, believing he would be beyond the reach of any court process. And it could have ended there, but it didn't. The manager of the mousetrap being so embittered against O'Brien by this time, told her lawyer, whatever it takes, and it took the survival of the restaurant because the restaurant closed, whatever it took, he was, the lawyer, was to pursue collecting that judgment from Dennis O'Brien. So the lawyer finally found O'Brien living in New Zealand and started the legal process now in New Zealand, not just for that $60,000 verdict, but for the accrued interest totaling $165,000. Remember, all over a little red tab that O'Brien claims he never got that, by the way, he found in his jacket pocket later on. Isn't that the story in some sense of most conflicts? It starts out as something small, a little red tab or whatever it may be in your marriage or your family or your friendships or at work or in your church circles, and it escalates. It keeps building as as each side responds to the other side. It's like each side is throwing a little more gas on a fire, and that fire becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. This is the pattern too many times. It's the pattern in our marriages. It's the pattern with our kids. It's the pattern with our parents. It's the pattern with our brothers and sisters and extended family. It's the pattern in our workplaces and in our friendships. Sadly, it's the pattern between our brothers and sisters in Christ within the local church. How does Jesus speak to this pattern? What does he have to say about conflict and the way it grows and how we turn from that and how we reverse that that pouring gas on the fire and making it bigger and bigger? Matthew 7, starting with verse 1, do not judge, Jesus says, or you will be judged For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now let me stop there at the end of verse 2 there. Jesus, let's get the context here. Jesus was speaking these words in the midst of his Sermon on the Mount. And in the context there, what he's doing is he's urging his followers not to have the same judgmental spirit as the Pharisees. Now in that context... Jesus is not, let me emphasize that again, Jesus is not teaching that we're never to address the behavior and the conduct 
of someone else, especially someone else who claims to be a follower of Jesus. What Jesus is saying or what he's warning against is doing that prematurely or doing that improperly. And what he goes on now to, to explain is when we should do that and how we should do that. When and how should we approach someone who has, at least by our perception, offended us or hurt us or sinned against us? And let me pick it up in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not consider the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, here, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrites. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Resolving conflict, making peace, pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation begins with a basic assumption. And it is the assumption that Jesus makes here in verse 3, and it is an assumption that I am convinced we skip over so many times. We fail to see. I'm convinced we don't want to see this assumption. But but let me me unpack the assumption for you. Look at at, uh, what he says in verse 3. There is something in your brother's eye. There is something that the other person in the conflict that you are with has contributed Maybe it's something they did. Maybe it's something that they said. Maybe it's something that they didn't do. There is something in their eye. There is some part that they have played, whether we want to put the word blame on it or not, they have contributed in some way to the conflict. But notice that's not the whole assumption here. There is also something in our eye. There is also something in your eye, Jesus says. There is a way in which you have contributed to this conflict. There is a way in which you have done something or said something or responded in such a way that Jesus calls it, you have something in your eye. Jesus, as the outline says, Jesus presumes that both you and your brother, your brother being anybody that you are in conflict with, whether it's your spouse, your parent, your son, your friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus presumes that both you and your brother have contributed in some way to this conflict. And you know, this was a a dawning of the light in my life as God began to show me how I was blowing up relationships in my own life in conflict. It was so easy for me to come self-righteously and think of myself saying, I said nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. In fact, the actions that I've taken and the words that I have spoken, they're the right ones. I was standing up for, for God's Word. I was standing up for truth or whatever it may be. I did not want to see what Jesus presumes here, that I had something in my eye. And that is true of all of us, whether we've been part of, whether we've done something or said something that has started the conflict or whether we're totally innocent and somebody has, has said something to us or done something to us that, uh, that offends us, but we respond back in a sinful way, even in our response, we pour gas on the fire. We have contributed to the conflict in some way. So I want you to hear this. 
Because until we get this, there is no moving forward in any of the conflicts in our life. Jesus presumes that not just the other person, but you, me, we have contributed to the conflicts that we are in in some way. Jesus teaches us that we always contribute either in the initiation of them or the perpetuation of them to the conflicts that we are in. And Jesus begins with that presumption. Notice uh, he uses the phrase, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? Uh, that, that phrase there, look at, that's the same wording that he uses earlier in Matthew 5, 28, when he describes how we look at a woman lustfully. That's not a passing glance, is it? That is a focusing on. That is a perseverating over type of looking at. What's Jesus saying there? In the midst of conflict, we focus on, we carefully observe, we perseverate upon the behavior of others. We see a speck in something that they've said or done, and we are focused on it. And we can't see anything but what we think we see in their eye, their contribution, their blame. As I've got in your sermon outline there on the screen, we tend to scrutinize the behavior of others, what they've said and what they've done. And we magnify, we tend to magnify what they have contributed to the conflict. What, what really may be only a speck in their eye in terms of their contribution to the conflict, we have the tendency to blow up to be a log. And so we see something slight, and as we perseverate on it and we think about it, it becomes larger and larger, a twig, a branch, and finally a log that we see in terms of their contribution. We do the exact opposite with regards to ourselves. Look at where he goes on here. We do not consider the log that is in our own eye. Do not consider. The word there literally means pay no attention to. We fail to perceive we take no notice of. We ignore. And, and notice the size differentiation. While the speck in our brother's eye looms large in our vision, the log in our eye seems insignificant. We tend to overlook our own behavior in conflict, and we tend to minimize what we have contributed to the conflict. Think about the last conflict that you have been involved in, or maybe think about the one you are currently involved in with your spouse or with your kids or with your brother or sister, extended family member, parent, co-worker, employer. What about the last conflict that you've been embroiled in with your brother and sister in Christ? How much did you focus on what he or she said or did? How much did you perseverate upon their actions and their words? How little did you focus on what you have said and what you have done? How little or how, how have you minimized or even denied that you have contributed to the conflict in any way? You see, Jesus is describing us in our daily relationships at every sphere of relationships that we are involved in. This is us that he's addressing here. Jesus clearly teaches us that we, going on to verse 4, we can't clearly see how the other person has contributed to the conflict if we're overlooking our own contribution. How can you say to your brother, 
let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. Now here, as, as he does elsewhere, Jesus is using the image of an eye to go beyond just physical sight. He's talking about our spiritual discernment. He's talking about our ability to look at a situation, a relational situation, and, and see it clearly. See it for what it is. See it in its bigger context. See the spiritual reality that is going on there. And what he's saying is you can have excellent, mature spiritual discernment, an ability to really see a situation well, and yet as you get involved in a conflict, you can be temporarily blinded. Even though your sight is normally excellent, your discernment is normally excellent, you can be temporarily blinded or at least have that discernment significantly impaired by a foreign object, by your own contribution, that it's lodged yourself in your eye, how you've contributed to the conflict that you failed to acknowledge. When I was 17 years old, I was working on a car, and for some reason, I don't remember, I had to cut the muffler off of the car, and I had it up on blocks, and it was an old rusty exhaust system, and I was going to cut that muffler off with a hacksaw, And my dad said, hey, Dan, you probably ought to wear safety glasses while you do that. I said, right, Dad. And I climbed under the car without safety glasses and got up under that muffler with my hacksaw and started to saw that off. And you know where the story is going, don't you? That a little piece of rusty, sharp metal, microscopic, really, fell into my eye and lodged itself in my eye. I felt the pain immediately. But you know what? When I crawled out underneath, from underneath that car after I was done cutting the muffler off, do you think I wanted to admit that to my father? <laughs> no way. I wasn't going to admit that I was wrong for not listening to him and wearing safety glasses. It was obvious to him as I got out from underneath the car that something had happened in my eye, but I denied it. Why? Because my pride did not want to let me admit what I had done and that I hadn't listened I went through 24 painful hours with that little speck in my eye until I finally came to my dad and said, I think we need to go to the doctor. And that had to be removed. And to this day, when I have an eye exam and they, they go in that scope where they look at your cornea, they're like, oh, you got, a, you got a scar on that cornea. Where'd that come from? Well, I don't tell that story too often. <laughs> but do you see how my failure, out of my pride to acknowledge that I had anything in my eye actually not only caused me pain, but it was obscuring my vision. And even to this day, I'm not sure to what degree my vision and my need to wear glasses is due to that injury to my cornea. Well, that's the same as, as, as you and me. That's the same as you and me in the midst of conflict. We do not want to acknowledge. We do not even want to examine our lives in some cases to determine whether we have contributed to the conflict in any way, whether there is some foreign object in our eye. And so because we naturally tend to scrutinize those we're in conflict with and magnify what they have done, and while we naturally tend to overlook and minimize what we have said and what we have done, And because we're not able to clearly see the causes and dynamics of the conflict we're in because of the blinding effects of our own contribution, Jesus says that being reality, there is only one way to begin to resolve conflict. 
There's only one way to pursue peace and reconciliation. Verse 5, first. He begins with first. It has to begin here. It doesn't begin with, as he said earlier, me with that log in my eye saying, come here, I'll take the speck out of your eye. Uh, Not only are you going to not get near me with that big log in my eye, but even if you did, I'm in no position to carefully remove what's in your eye. It can't begin with my focus on your contribution, my focus on what's in your eye, my focus on whatever I want to call it, your fault, your blame. First, it has to begin with getting the log out of my own eye, with dealing with my own contribution to the conflict. Again, whatever part, whether I think it's small or whether I acknowledge it's bigger than that, whether, whether it was part of what initiated the conflict or what has simply just perpetuated the conflict, it has to, Jesus says, begin with me. It has to begin with you in the midst of your conflicts. He gives us no other option. First, take the log out of your own eye. So let's talk about log removal. What does it mean? How do we begin to get the log out of our own eye? A few suggestions here. First of all, getting the log out of your own eye, look beneath your words and actions. How many times do we evaluate what we've said in in the development of a conflict or what we've done in the development of a conflict, and we look at our words and our actions as as righteous? You know, I was standing for a principle. I said nothing overtly wrong. I did nothing overtly sinful. There's nothing in my eye. Jesus says, look beneath your words and your actions. Look at what you're thinking. Look at what you're feeling. Look at what your attitudes are. Look at what is going on inside and in your heart where all of our our words and our actions flow out of. What are the thoughts and the feelings and the attitudes that are going on in our hearts Proverbs 16.2 reminds us that even when all our ways, all our actions, all our words seem right to us, the the Lord evaluates our motives. The Lord looks deeper than what's on the surface. The Lord looks at what we may not even be able to fully understand ourselves. Why did I respond that way? What's going on in my heart that generated that kind of response? Why has this become so important to me? What is going on in my heart? Why do I feel these feelings towards that person? What is going on in my heart? The Lord evaluates the motives. So we begin to get the log out by by coming to Him, by prayerfully evaluating ourselves, asking God, "Show, show me the thoughts, show me the emotions, the feelings, the attitudes that you want me to see. I can think of no better way to begin in prayer than Psalm 139. This is probably familiar to some of you. I love the word Psalm 139, starting with verse 23. Search me, O God, and probe my thoughts. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any idolatrous tendency in me. We're asking him to get beneath the surface where we might not be willing to go in our thinking and in our evaluation of ourselves, We're asking Him to turn up, to bring up to the surface the thoughts 
the attitudes, the emotions that are beneath what is stirring in us, causing the conflict. We're asking Him ultimately to show us our idolatrous tendencies. Now, now that may be a new word for you as a Christian. You may, you may think of, of idolatry as something that's done by, by pagans off in some remote part of the jungle, but John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory, that we have this natural tendency within us to take good things and to make them too great of things, to, to raise them above God and to make them functional idols in our lives. So let me define idol simply for you as this. An idol is anything that becomes more important to us than God, even a good thing that we make more important than God. James, James describes it this way in James 4.1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that wage war in your heart? Let me illustrate it this way. If I'm holding a cup of water and, uh, and one of you come and you either accidentally or, or intentionally, you, you jostle that cup and now water has spilled out of the cup and, and, and onto the floor. If I were to ask you the question, why is there water on the floor? What's our natural tendency to focus on the person who jostled me? That person who did that to me, who said that thing to me, who took that action towards me. There why water was spilled. But you want to know the real answer? There is water on the floor because there was water in the cup. There are fights and quarrels, James says, because there are desires in our heart that are waging war in our heart. Anything can precipitate them, but it's the desires that are brought out by that offensive word or that hurtful action. James and Jesus are telling us we need to look deeper than what's going on in the surface and figure out what is the desire that is waging war in our heart. Now, James doesn't qualify these desires. He doesn't call these desires sinful. There are some overtly sinful desires, lustful desires, malicious desires, greedy desires. But most of the time, our desires are good. Most of the time, the desires that wage war in our heart are desires that God has implanted in us, has created us with. I desire to be loved. I desire to be respected. I desire to be honored. I desire to be listened to. I desire to be included. I desire to be told the truth. All those are good desires. All those are God-created desires in us. But what happens when we take one of those desires and it becomes too important to us? Let me just take one from my own life. I desire to be respected. I desire to be respected by my wife, by my sons, by those I work with, by, by the body of Christ. I, I have this desire to be respected, a God-given desire. But what can happen to that desire? There is a downward spiral of our desires as they become functional idols in our life. I've got a little bit of a chart there. It starts with, I desire. I desire my wife to respect me. I desire that, and because that becomes so important to me, I get to the place where I cross the line, and that good desire becomes a demand. 
I demand for my wife or my sons or whoever to respect me. And of course, that's framed by how I think I should be respected. That's framed by my expectations of what it means for me to be respected, which may be off, which may may not be totally accurate. And what happens invariably when those expectations are not fulfilled? I begin to judge the person who I perceive is not respecting me, whether that's my wife or my sons or my brothers or sisters in Christ. I judge them in my heart. I judge them as sinful. I judge them as as disrespectful. I judge them in all kinds of ways. And what happens out of that judgment? I begin to punish them. Because you, my wife, did not respect me, because you, my sons, or my brother in Christ did not respect me, I'm now going to punish you. I, I'm not, I can't send you to jail. I'm not going to sue you, but I'm going to distance myself from you. I'm going to punish you by the cold iciness of distance. Or I'm going I'm to punish you by how I speak about you to other people. Or I'm going to punish you by fill in the blank. There are so many ways short of violence, short of incarceration, that we can realistically punish someone who we have started with a good desire, made it into a demand, an expectation, judged the person for failing to fulfill it, and now decided that because they are judged and found guilty, they need to be punished. That is how we take a good desire and we make it an idolatrous tendency. And that, in a nutshell, is what James says, causes fights and quarrels. Now, as you think about the conflicts that you may be involved in even presently, how do you begin to, to think about that? Let me give you a couple diagnostic questions here. As, as you're trying to mine that out, here's a question. What am I preoccupied with? Even as we've been talking about conflict today, who comes to your mind and what is it that, that, that really weighs heavy on you? There is probably the beginnings of finding some idolatrous desires there as you think about what preoccupies your thoughts. What do I want to preserve at all costs? In other words, what am I willing to fight with you over to keep, to maintain, to keep from changing? Or what do I want to avoid at all costs? What is it that you want me to do that there is no way without a fight that I'm going there? That probably is going to reveal the beginnings of an idolatrous desire. What causes me to feel frustration, to feel anxiety, to feel fear, to feel anger, even to feel depression? Not not always in all of these things, but those are good indicators to look at what might be a desire that has become a functional idol in my life and therefore is producing conflict. As God reveals that to me, as God reveals that to you, what's the way forward? The the Lord speaks through through James, James chapter 4, again going on in verse 7. Submit yourselves there to God. What is that, Lord Jesus? as I see that this desire to be respected has become too important to me, as I see how I have made it into a demand and how I have judged this person whom I love and and I am punishing her or him for failing to live up to my expectations, Lord, I see I have put that in a place above you and I need to surrender to you again. I need to submit to you. Resist the devil. 
Lord, I recognize a weakness in me. I, I recognize this, this desire to be respected comes out of this fear of being shamed, of being found unworthy, worthless. And I know that's a weak spot. I know the enemy wants to press in there. Lord, help me to resist as your Holy Spirit empowers me. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Lord, I need your Word. I need your Spirit. I need to worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need all of these means of grace, Lord, in order to be close to you in the midst of this struggle. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. I may need to go to that person, whether it's my wife or my son or, or a brother and sister in Christ, and confess, cleanse my hands, purify my heart. I, I have loved one. I, I have sinned against you. I, I have made this thing, this desire, I've made this too important, and I've been judging you for the way that you have failed to live up to my expectations, and I have been punishing you, and I'm guilty before God, and I am guilty for how I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me? It may mean I need to cleanse my hands and purify my heart. And finally, humble yourselves before the Lord. I I wasn't going to get any help for what had happened to my eye until I admitted I hadn't listened, until I admitted I was wrong, until I admitted there was something in my eye. I had to humble myself. I had to crucify my pride. What do you see in that story of Dennis O'Brien and the mousetrap? You see pride built upon pride, built upon pride, built upon pride. If any one of those two had humbled themselves at any point in the process, it could have stopped. And how often is that true in our conflict? Humble yourselves before the Lord. Let me leave you with this. This is my desire for myself. This is my desire for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is my desire for our church. This is not all, but this is a part of what's called the Peacemaker's Pledge. It's taken from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. It's part of Peacemaker Ministries and and how they try and help followers of Christ walk through conflict in a God-honoring way. Listen to the words of this from the Peacemaker's Pledge. Instead of blaming others for a conflict or resisting correction, we will trust in God's mercy and take responsibility for our own contribution to conflicts, confessing our sins to those that we have wronged, asking God to help us change any attitudes and habits that lead to conflict, and seeking to repair any harm we have caused. This is who I want to be. This is who I hope is the Spirit of God works in your heart and your mind this morning that you want to be. This is who we want to be as a church. How will you allow the Holy Spirit to take Jesus' words in Matthew 7 to look at what's in your eye first, to deal with what's in your eye in order to pursue the resolution of the conflicts that you may be involved in? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for speaking so clearly in your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for this teaching. 
Thank you for how pointed it is. It truly is, like you say, of your word, a sharp two-edged sword. It pierces right through all my defenses, all our intellectual rationalizations, all our self-righteousness. It cuts us right to the point of where we need to be cut. And Lord, I pray that your spirit now would use this to do the work of convicting each of us in the, in the, the conflicted relationships that we are involved in. Help us to look at what we need to do first, Lord. Help us to identify what's in our eye. Help us to be people who begin by getting the log out of our own eye. Humble us, Lord. Empower us. Lord Jesus, there may be men or women or young men or young women here this morning who this is so foreign because they have not yet come to the place of knowing you as Savior and Lord. And I acknowledge, Lord, this cannot be humanly done until you become our Savior and our Lord and you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Even then it's hard, but we have your Spirit leading us. And so even this morning, Lord, maybe the first step for some is to embrace you as Savior and Lord. Lord, I pray that, that as you move today, there, there would be those who, who would be ready to come forward and pray. And maybe that's to pray to to allow Jesus to become Savior and Lord of their lives. Maybe that's to pray to, to, even though that's already true of them, to submit themselves to you anew. Do your work by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.